0: Last time around, you got to listen to a fun, interactive tour of Lost Spirits Distillery, led by co-founder Brian Davis. This episode is a companion to that part one tour and tasting, where we grab a seat at the bar and dig deep into the strategies and motivations behind Brian's quest to master accelerated barrel aging using his proprietary technology. Before we jump in, though, I've got a little early Valentine's Day gift exclusively for our podcast listeners. We're bringing back the bittersweet box this month so that you can have a really dope gift to give your sweetheart or your office mates or your mailman this Valentine's Day. This is a nifty little gift box that contains... 30 milliliter bottles of our embitterment orange and chocolate bitters as well as a couple chocolate bar minis courtesy of our friends over at chocotenango They make amazing chocolate. Now check out what we're doing to really sweeten this deal. In the past we had two mini dark chocolate bars, one cacao nib and one sea salt. This year we're doubling the chocolate so you get four gourmet dark chocolate bars, and two bottles of bitters. Normally, this box retails for around $15, but if you enter the coupon code BEMINE, all one word, B-E-M-I-N-E, at checkout, you'll get $3 off your bittersweet box purchase. 12 bucks for two bottles of bitters and four chocolate bars. That's pretty good. This code's only going to stick around for the month of February, so be sure to head on over to ModernBarCart.com and grab one of these awesome gift boxes before they're gone. And again, don't forget that coupon code, be mine at checkout. And you know what? All this talk about chocolate and coupon codes is starting to make me thirsty, so why don't we take a moment, you and I, to make ourselves a drink. This episode's featured cocktail is the Jet Pilot, which is a complex tiki drink invented in 1958 at the Beverly Hills Luau restaurant. This is a riff on an earlier cocktail called the Test Pilot, which was developed by Don the Beachcomber himself. But the Jet Pilot seems to have made more of a name for itself in the tiki canon. So we're going to focus on that one for this episode. To make the Jet Pilot cocktail, you'll need... gotta take a deep breath here because there's a lot of ingredients. A half ounce of fresh lime juice, a half ounce of grapefruit juice, a half ounce of cinnamon syrup, a half ounce of Falernum, which is kind of this um, velvety uh, spiced syrup, one ounce of dark Jamaican rum, three quarters of an ounce of gold Puerto Rican rum, three quarters of an ounce of overproof Demerara rum, one dash of aromatic bitters, and six drops of Pernod. Or absinthe. Now, technically, this is a blender drink where you combine all ingredients in a blender with ice and blitz them up for no longer than five seconds. Essentially, the goal is to crush the ice for this drink without turning it into a slushy. But This effect could very easily be replicated by shaking the cocktail for about 20 seconds with a couple nice large two-inch ice cubes, and then straining into a rocks glass over some crushed or pebble ice. I feel like that method might be slightly more convenient than the blender route. Also, this goes against pretty much every rule in the Tiki Rulebook, and I'm sure Don the Beachcomber and Trader Vic are simultaneously rolling in their graves as I utter this heresy. But if you don't have three bottles of rum laying around, you can probably get away with just using an equivalent amount of your favorite dark rum. I know, I know, I am literally the worst. Excuse me for trying to make tiki a little easier to do at home. The Jet Pilot is one of Brian Davis's favorite cocktails, as he mentions in the lightning round during this episode, and one flavor combination here that I can personally attest to is the beautiful marriage of bright citrus in the form of lime and grapefruit juice and that velvety sweetness from the Falernum and the cinnamon syrup what happens is the acid and the sweetness keep turning over and over in your mouth providing a really dynamic and round flavor experience with a long complex finish and now that you're dreaming of tiki let's turn our attention back to the guy who makes beautiful, delicious rum. In this post-distillery tour interview with Brian Davis of Lost Spirits Distillery, some of the topics we discuss include Brian's thoughts on the impact his accelerated approach to barrel aging has had on the spirits industry at large. How Lost Spirits uses innovation as a way to contribute meaningfully to the global conversation that all distillers and consumers are currently engaged in. Thoughts on building the perfect distillery and why the goal doesn't need to be selling more and more cases of booze. The story of how Brian learned to make his first and last cocktail from legendary New York bartender Sasha Petrasky. Why the end of the 19th century was the peak of American and English culture in terms of innovation and much, much more. Perhaps more so than some episodes, this one has a bit of shop talk. And what I mean by that is that Brian and I are taking kind of a macro look at the driving forces and consolidation of the spirits industry. This is subject matter that home consumers and industry professionals alike should really strive to understand better because it helps you really get a grasp on why certain companies or products or trends are on the rise. And in many respects the insights that Brian provides are kind of an antidote to some of the less exciting large-scale trends in the industry. So if you're a distiller or a bartender, I think you'll really enjoy this episode. And even if you're not, I guarantee that you'll learn quite a bit just from observing how Brian thinks and trying to apply some of those principles to your own life. With that, I'll do my customary sidestep here and let you immerse yourself in this one-of-a-kind interview with Brian Davis of Lost Spirits Distillery. So, Brian, thank you for that awesome tour. Yeah, no, no sweat. Anytime. (laughs) That was bizarre. It was delightful. And uh, you could tell that that it was curated with both a sense of humor and a a sense of kind of like really giving the guest a special experience. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, thank you for that. But I, what I wanted to talk about here um, is your approach to kind of throwing conventional barrel aging to the wind.
1: Well, I mean, you're throwing convention of every form to the wind, I suppose, is probably the right statement, right?
0: Yeah. So can you just talk about the, I guess, most basic impulse to do that? Why? Uh, I mean
1: there's so many different reasons and so many different sides to that equation, right? I mean, there's the obvious economic one which people are, all, people are always thinking about, right? Uh, but in truth, it wasn't really developed for that purpose at all originally. It was actually developed with the idea in mind when I was using barrels in a more conventional sense of being able to try to A-B test my way to what spirit I should be putting in the barrel. Um, there's a certain point at which what we were getting out of the technology was surpassing what came from the A-B test out of, or what you were getting from the barrels. And so it became a point where it was like, wait, why am I using the barrel at all at this point? Um, and it was somewhat of a gradual progression, I think, in that sense. Uh, but yeah, I mean, as far as the aging point of view, or more importantly, the the overall strategy of throwing the convention to the wind in every sense that you can think of, is that you take something like a Laphroaig, which is already nearly perfect, right? Yeah. And then you go, Okay what are you going to do to make something that contributes to this conversation or adds value to this equation? Because you're not really going to necessarily out Lefroy Lefroy, right? And even if you did, what's the point, uh, right? Because you can already go buy a 20-year-old independent bottling of LeFroig. It already exists. It's on the shelf. You know, Maybe you have to do a little poking around on the internet. But you can go find whatever you want to find in that space. And so it was mostly a matter of going like, okay, what's our reason for being? Why do we get a right to exist? What are we doing that nobody's done before? What makes this interesting? And I mean, I run two very different companies with two very different personalities, right? There's, there's one that's the technology licensing side of the equation. And that's serious business, right? Um, That's all about economics and math. And, And then there's the other side of the equation, which is my own distillery where you're asking the question of, okay, how do you create meaningful value or add to a conversation or create something that nobody's ever seen before um, that would be interesting and experiential and experiential from a point of view of the tour, but also experiential from the point of view of what you're drinking. Because I very much think that a bottle of good booze is designed to be, you know, drank at a whiskey club uh, where it is the entertainment, right? It's not necessarily an accompaniment to the entertainment. And so you have to make a glass of booze that's going to captivate people for 15, 20 minutes, um, and be able to drive its own entertainment right. uh, and be the center and the subject of conversation. And so how do you make something that, that adds value to that conversation or to that equation in a way that at least my friend circle cares about, <laughs> right? Right, right. Um, and I think that's probably the single biggest driving impetus was to go like, okay, you know, one of the most interesting things about Distilled Spirits is that as a consequence of the consolidation of the industry over the course of the last hundred years, you've really stifled research right? Because nobody needs to compete, right? They don't, there's no, the, like everybody is the same company in a lot of ways that today that they were a hundred years ago. And they're going to stay that way unless somebody jogs them out of it. And maybe they're going to stay that way anyway, but there's going to be added on new layers and new interesting things to talk about. And the bottom line to it is that, you know, they're, they they have not had a need to go do research to better understand what they're making or why they're making it or how they're making it. And so it left this giant knowledge gap, Right, if you wanted to fill, a, if you wanted to go read about wine, where there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds thousands of wineries that are all competing with each other neck and neck, there's more research material on wine than you can possibly imagine. You could fill this entire room, and it's a big room, um, from floor to ceiling, with all of the different papers published on different aspects of wine fermentation. If you wanted to do the same thing with distilled spirits, you wouldn't be able to fill the countertop that we're in front of. Right. Uh, you know. It's so a a desert in terms of that kind of information. And so the minute I got into this, it was like, wow, this is actually like uncharted territory. That's exciting, that's interesting, Uh, you know?
0: Yeah, and so that was kind of the accelerant that made you commit to it, right? Sure, I mean,
1: you know, at the end of the day, um, uh, the way I've often described this is that this whole thing really exists to keep me from getting bored. Uh, And so anytime I can find something that's not boring uh, it's like, ooh, what's this gonna do? Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Oh, ooh, 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 look at this. What if we apply that to this? You know? Yeah. And also, booze is such a fun space to do this uh, because it's so harmless, so to speak. Uh, you know? Whereas if you take the exact same approach and you want to, you know, go do this with editing the genome of bacteria. Uh, Right. There's all these potentially like serious, dangerous downstream consequences and all of these ethical questions that you have to go into. Right. Twenty eight days later. Yeah. I mean, there's just (laughs) a lot like you just run into a lot of very serious, not only laws and regulations, but also, you know, things that require ethical boards, or at least they should. Uh, Because, I mean, these things have serious downstream consequences. And, And so you have to sort of tread very lightly with science on a lot of the current frontiers. Uh, are are also inherently dangerous. Um, And so, I mean, on the engineering front too, right? You want to go make self-driving cars, welcome to the same club, right? Um, And so, booze is such a fun space because basically, you know, the worst thing you're going to do is piss off a conservative, right? Who thinks that booze is a religion and gets suddenly extremely disturbed that you've uh, violated their cultural norms, uh, you know, and that's the the beginning and the end of the extent of the consequences of your actions.
0: Right, but I do want to talk about those consequences because when I uh, listened to your TED talk and when I did some research on on what you were doing here, the first thing that came to my mind was like, God, he's got to be pissing everybody off. Yeah, a lot less than you might think,
1: <laughs> is the is the short answer. I think I thought I was going to piss off a lot more people than I actually pissed off, <laughs> truthfully. So first off, I should preface this with I'm under a non-disclosure agreement with virtually everyone you've ever heard of, um, and including some of them that very publicly hate me.
0: Okay. That's, that's a fun <laughs> right. twist. Um,
1: and, uh, and so at the end of the day, you know, I mean, even if people have no interest in ever using this kind of thing, they still want to sort of like keep a sense on what we're doing and make sure that it doesn't end up being a potential threat to their monopolies. Um, and so there's one side of the business that's all about that. And then there's another side where a lot of, and this is true for a lot of what I thought were going to be very, very, very conservative companies, um, uh, that kind of look at it as like, okay, that's interesting. Maybe this is where our next round of innovations are going to come from, or maybe this is where, uh, the industry is going to head and it's in a new way of thinking about it. And, uh, you know, they don't necessarily want to be left behind either. And so you end up in a lot of conversations with them too. And, uh, you know, I think about it very much like cooking, right? You know, if you went back to 1980, um, there were regular everyday restaurants that you went to, and then if you went to a good one, it was French. Yep. And there are a couple of different styles of French cooking. You're gonna cook in one of those styles, everything will be graded and assessed according to how it stacks up against the current top of the game in that particular style of cooking. And then along comes modernism, and all of a sudden you get modernist cooking and everything goes haywire and people start creating restaurants that are building shows out of really spectacular chemistry tricks yep. applied to food where you get you know probably my the most extreme example i can possibly think of is the uh, uh what do you call it uh, alinea's balloons all right Where it's like here's a balloon of caramel filled with a uh, with a vaporized apple yes but, and you know i'm kind of looking at it going
0: like well why can't we do that with spirits? I mean, that seems like a great idea. I mean, we've already managed with the poor Williams to grow the pear in the bottle. Right, sure. Yeah. <laughs> and it's also
1: really, really fun because distilled spirits, unlike cooking, um, almost all of your, not all of, half of your processes are biological fermentation based. Um, and so that creates all kinds of new interesting opportunities to go fiddling with the source code, if you will, and getting all of these different outputs. You know, I did a product for a, on a consulting agreement the company that isn't around anymore a long time ago, but it was really fun uh, where we basically made a rum using a muck pit or a dunder pit. uh, And the dunder pit had bacteria growing in it that produced different short chain fatty acids than what shows up in any bottle of rum. Uh, And so you ended up with basically like, a sort of inspired by Jamaica, wacky, weirdo set of flavors that you would never find in a bottle of booze. Mm-hmm. It actually drove bartenders crazy because they didn't know what to do with it. It like, <laughs> didn't work in any cocktail. You know, they'd taste it and go like, oh, this is going to be so fun. And then start making every drink. And they're just like, they are all horrible. Yeah. And it was like, yeah, you have to get creative with it. You have That's to great. figure out your own from zero because it's not going to match up.
0: Yeah. Do you And think, that kind of stuff's fun. Do you think what you're doing is more breaking things or like breaking existing things or making new things? I think it's much more making new things.
1: Um, I mean, I don't really work in a sector of the industry much where we're truly transforming it in a disruptive way. Like I think people sort of expect that or or they think it's there. But in reality, you know, when you're dealing with a consolidated industry, there's like, you know, there's billions of dollars worth of booze in barrels. It didn't suddenly vaporize the moment we came up with this new way of of getting to the same output. Um, It's not like that suddenly just made all those barrels disappear. You know, and so you get into conversations with people on the, the serious business side, which I'm guessing is the part you're, where you're going with this as opposed to the fun tour uh, and distillery. And, you know, you get into these conversations where it's like they're looking at, OK, well, if we wanted to make something new and we want to make something interesting. And, you know, what happens if this really traditional conservative distillery wants to make something avant garde? Uh, you know, how would we approach that? Or what happens if, uh, you know, we use this to create a new product in conjunction with you or you know, most of them are more Just like, you know, we have no
0: idea what to do with this, but we're certainly interested. Right. Uh, You know? So when I was thinking about this conversation, these products, um, I I think of myself as a pretty open-minded person when it comes to stuff like what we're talking about. Like, Mm -hmm. okay, this guy is going against conventional grain. I tend to enjoy that sort of stuff. And so I tried to say, you know, I tried to look at things and be like, all right, how do I personally feel about this? So here's Brian, and he's taking time largely out of this equation for making these beautiful spirits and that obviously has some economic implications because we could offer a product that might have been sold for60 dollars a bottle for a much lower price which um, you know for a project like modern Barkhart that that's really geared toward making great cocktails and spirits, more available to more people. Mm-hmm. That sounds like a great thing to me. Sure. Like from a strict like supply and demand economic side of things. You ever build
1: a big enough factory, you might be able to do it.
0: Yeah. <laughs> you know. Um, so um. so that part of it is, it appeals to me. But then there's the other part of me that thinks like, man, is there a difference between like if we're doing like a thought experiment, if if I were to put down a barrel, let it age for 30 years and then you were to reverse engineer that essentially mm-hmm. and we were to put the two spirits in a glass side by side is there a difference there and part of me still likes the romance of the the process but i don't like the price point yeah i mean i think there's an element
1: of uh, i mean so no matter how successful the technology I created ultimately becomes, right? Because the thing about patents is that I get to control this for a grand total of like 20 years. And then at some point it becomes public domain and there'll be companies in China making knockoffs of my equipment. God help them. But, uh, (laughs) um, and so, you know, it's one of those things where eventually I'll lose control of it. And at that point it probably will become much more accessible and widespread because I also very tightly curate who I let play with the toys, right? And I don't really do very much... um, uh, licensing work anymore. I don't really like, it's a little too much handholding for me. And uh, and so eventually you'll get all kinds of things on a spectrum from very good to very bad probably produced using it. What I don't think you'll ever see though is the idea of, you know, I bought this bottle that went into a barrel on the year that the daughter was born and she's now graduating with her PhD and I'm presenting this bottle to her. Right. right? Like, like that romance, that magic is never going away. Um, it, no matter how high-techy you get with it, and no matter how the market goes, even in the age of molecular gastronomy and modernist cooking, right, it's not like the French Laundry suddenly didn't have customers anymore. (laughs) Right. Right. Uh, What it created was a new way to uh, have a different experience and relationship with food, uh, and it created a different kind of experience and a different thing to do on Saturday night. Um, which is fun. Yeah. And that just adds richness to everybody's lives.
0: Right. Not better, just different. Yeah. Better in certain ways. Sure. More interesting in one way,
1: less interesting in another.
0: Yeah. You know, okay.
1: You, you, law, you gave up this thing. You gained that thing. Right? I love thinking about the booze industry through the lens of a different industry. So imagine if the movie industry approached their industry the exact same way that the beverage industry does. Where it was like, no, no, it's Friday night. You will watch Casablanca again. Yeah. (laughs) I know you like Casablanca. You're a Casablanca person. That's why you watch Casablanca every Friday night, right? Uh, You know, eventually you'd get to a fairly dull world at which you know every single word to Casablanca. Uh, You're bored to tears with it. And you'd probably like to get something new for that Friday night, (laughs) right? (laughs) Um, And so the beverage industry in a lot of ways is like that. Uh, and you get to where, because it's so consolidated and its philosophical approach is such, that you start getting things that are like, okay, you're a Casablanca person. We've now made a new version, in which all the songs are different, but it's the same movie.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> Super special mega release. We've changed the piano for a harpsichord. Ah. <laughs> right. Right. Um, like, I mean, the, the changes from one release to the next are really, really subtle. and uh, And for me... That's just a little boring. Um, and uh, and if, if I had to live in that world and I had to stay in that space, and there were rules that made it so that I couldn't do what I'm doing, uh, I probably would have gone into biotech instead sure. at some point, uh, right? Just to go like, okay, well, there's something interesting to do over here. Uh, but I ended up in the booze business by accident more than anything else, and, and thought, well, this is fun because there's this whole universe that nobody's exploring. And, and so many opportunities and possibilities to like, Create different flavor profiles, create different ways of presenting it, create different ways of experiencing it, um, create different ways of packaging it. You know? um, I mean, the labeling laws get in my way and drive me crazy half the time because uh, I'd really like to see a world in which you didn't have any sense of class or type whatsoever. You just called it what you wanted and then gave the consumers like an ingredients list. Yeah, because uh, I would love to make booze that's labeled untitled number 24.
0: Uh, And goes on the category of avant-garde. Yeah, there you go. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) There's actually a distillery in D.C. that's doing an untitled collection, but it's just, uh, it's whiskeys. Right. So it's. Yeah, no, it's like, it's the word whiskey underneath it actually takes half of the fun out of that. Sure. Uh,
1: Because the whole point of doing it is to make people go like, how am I supposed to interact with it? Yeah. Uh, You
0: know? Um, I, I like what you said. I like the not better, just different. I like that the variety is always a good thing. So that seems to sure. be the, that seems to be the, the real value prop, right? So bet or different or variety is always a good thing.
1: You know, it's sort of funny because on my I don't think about my distillery um, very often in terms of terms like value proposition, <laughs> right? Because we built this thing. At the time at which we built it, the tech business was very much on its way. Uh, and we had a couple partners we're working with and you know, all is well. And so it was one of those things where I didn't really build this with the idea in mind of going like, okay, what's its value proposition and what kind of a business is this? I really built it from the point of view of like, okay, if I'm building, I mean, I can actually like the thought process that created it was, okay, we're gonna build a new distillery, first off, why? And second, what do you want a distillery to be? Like, what is the perfect distillery? What would that look like? And, and my answer, it was Joanne asking me the, the, the question, and, and my answer back to her was that, you know, the perfect distillery is built alongside the Temple of Inari uh, in Japan, which if you're not familiar with the temple, it's a temple dedicated to the hot fox god of, uh, of sake production. Um, and uh, and the, the
0: hot fox meaning the high-temperature fox? No, it's a female fox. It's an attractive fox. Okay. Uh,
1: and to get to her temple... Uh, you wind up a mountain through a series of tori or Japanese gates uh, that wind the entire mountain going around in circles and circles and circles. And everybody making booze at the top of this temple would be carrying it on bamboo poles with buckets. Um, and, and you'd be there because it was some sort of a monastic service to make the best bottle of booze you can. Yeah. And there's actually there's a brewery that's almost like this, mm-hmm. um, which makes the best beer in the world by a lot of accounts, uh, which is St. Sixtus. And okay. so I very much went to St. Sixtus as well going like, okay, that is the most perfect brewery in the world, right? It's a bunch of monks. They make the best beer on the planet by many, many accounts. Sure, They make the beer. They only make enough beer to cover the praying budget for the monks. Um, so they write out how much money they need to cover everybody's cost of praying every year. That is exactly how much beer they will make. You get on a wait list. You, you, you're allowed to buy two cases on beer sale days. You line up on the freeway for miles and miles and miles starting at 6am to get up there and get your beer and drive home with it. It's so cool. I mean, just everything about that I love. Yeah. And so it was one of these things where it was like, okay, if that's the perfect distillery, okay, now what does that look like here? And at one point I thought of building like A crazy little esoteric distillery somewhere like insanely remote uh, where it became this ridiculous, arduous journey to get to it.
0: Yeah. Uh, Those exist.
1: Um, Yeah. yeah. No, I mean, and and I was thinking, like, okay, you know, that would be super fun. And we just sort of went through a whole bunch of different ideas and then went, like, okay, well, what if you sort of approach it um, not so much execution wise, but in a lot of ways with the idea of what they used when they built Enigma in Barcelona, uh, which is Fran Adria's new, one of his new restaurants. Okay. Uh, and Enigma was designed to have different rooms in which all of the different spirits were served, or the roo- or spirits where all the different plates were served, where the room was designed to sort of like be an artistic expression of the plate, okay. and, and the two were designed to be experienced in conversation with each other. Mm-hmm. And then it was like, okay, let's do that. And then I used to design amusement park rides for a living as a, um, out of school. Okay, and so it was like, ooh, what if I make it like a ride? <laughs> Uh, you know, and you end up with this ridiculously lowbrow and ridiculously highbrow juxtaposed against each other, yeah, and like a in a really funny. interesting conversation with each other. And it sort of like added on a whole other layer that I was really into. Uh, and so that's kind of how this place was born. It wasn't really born with the point of view of like, you know, what's going to make my customers happier, get them to buy more booze. I mean, in all honesty, the the distillery itself has been sold out and back ordered uh, in forever. Right. The original Monterey County distillery, which we closed to build this one because we wanted to make a cooler one, made the same amount of booze. <laughs> so it's not like we built it uh, or it went down this entire road because we wanted to, like, somehow sell more cases. Um, I mean, maybe one day, who knows? Uh, but in reality, it was more a matter of going like, OK, what do I think would be really, really cool?
0: I think there's a lot to admire about that. I think there's a lot of people out there who wish they, uh, they could, uh, you know, get away with that sort of thinking in their own day-to-day lives. So I think in that respect, it's really excellent inspiration for people both in the spirits industry, the cocktail industry, and outside of that who are just listening because, you know, they're great home bartenders sure. and they, they listen to our podcast. So, you know, you write, the, the biggest problem with that
1: thinking or the biggest thing you have to solve to be able to think that way is you have to somehow solve the economics problem. You know? yeah. And at the original distillery in Monterey County, we solved the economics problem by downgrading our budget on a personal level to the point that we had almost zero expenses. And so back then, I mean, the distillery would literally pay us like $2,000 a month for two people, <laughs> right? But it didn't matter because we had managed to pare our expenses down so insanely low that you know the distillery covered all the bills. You know, we lived at the, uh, at the house on the distillery property. And so we basically freed ourselves of the economics that way. That gave me the time to do the research to then ultimately create the technology. And then the technology created an environment in which I could get free of the economics again the other way. And then, of course, you could build a bigger, more elaborate, you know, the the adult budget component. Yes. Um, Whereas the first one was just the treehouse.
0: Right, right. (laughs) Uh, well, this is, uh, certainly, you know, th- it, this is not the end. This is, you can't, you can't call this the culmination because literally you're, you're still building stuff. Oh, we'll never here. stop. Yeah. Uh, we just keep adding more buildings. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, this is a good neighborhood to do it in. You know, yeah. you've got plenty of space. Um,
1: you're in one under construction at the moment. Yeah. Uh, it's the new tasting room and uh, we have another one under construction, which is going to be my next stop after I get done with you.
0: Why don't you tell us really quickly, I want to do a couple of lightning round questions, but why don't you tell us about these chairs that are lying around here? Oh, they're
1: just, they're for the tasting room experience.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, So the idea is that you sit down in them and you get a a glass of booze and they hold the glass of booze. um, And then you've got a sort of aluminum holder on the other side that holds uh, uh, like stereoscopes uh, to let people sort of get an immersive experience out of it. And then it's ultimately going to be full of holograms and all kinds of other cool things. So it's be really fun
0: yeah so we go from the the creepy talking birds to uh to a, a, hol- a hologram experience yeah this
1: room may be creepier
0: in a, in a good way <laughs> um fantastic well hopefully uh a year down the road somebody uh, in the neighborhood who finds this podcast can come down and uh, give us a little update on the, the hologram experience um <laughs> but can we do a couple quick lightning round questions yeah sure uh so this is a spirits related episode, but we're a cocktail podcast. So, mm-hmm. uh, do you have a favorite cocktail? And, and, uh, if not, what's something you've been more recently obsessed with?
1: I don't know that I have a favorite. I mean, it changes over it, time. I right? wouldn't
0: expect you to, uh, I, I mean, I, really I, could, I
1: could probably my, my handful of favorites sure. uh, on the rum side.
0: Uh, I totally love jet pilots. Uh, and jungle birds, okay. Jungle oh. birds, uh, the Campari rum, lime, and what am I missing? Or oh God, I don't know. Pineapple. I, pineapple. I don't make the drinks. I just order yep. them. Yep. And, pineapple. <laughs> and what's roughly in
1: the, uh, the first cocktail. All right, so I'm going to look it up because I have absolutely no idea how to make drinks. Okay. So a, a fun backstory, um, Sasha Petrosky was my first customer when we opened the original distillery in Spain, okay. uh, back when Joanne and I were in our twenties and this was for absinthe. Correct? Yeah. And, uh, and so when I originally met with him, uh, he decided that I really needed to know how to make some cocktails because the cocktail section on our website when we were in our 20s, not good. It was actually a condition of, the, of him being our customers. We had to take it down.
0: <laughs> right. <laughs> and, uh, That's pretty good. Um, and again, this is Sasha Petrasky of Milk and Honey fame, very famous bartender who really kind of helped get things kicked off in New York.
1: Yeah. So Sasha decided that I needed to learn how to make cocktails. So he decided he was going to teach me how to make one drink. That was like the drink that my booze that I made at that time was like born for, Mm -hmm. and it's still one of the best cocktails I've ever had when he makes it. Uh, and it's called a sea fizz. (laughs) Okay. And so he takes me back behind the bar and he spends about two hours with me teaching me how to make a sea fizz. And so I go back to Spain and I get back to like Joanne and Olivia and the rest of the crew in the office there. And I'm like, okay, guys, I got to show you how to make this new cocktail. And you got to keep in mind, we're all like 25-year-old kids, so we don't know anything yet, you know? And, uh, and so I get all the ingredients together and I'm like trying to separate the egg whites and shake this thing correctly with the egg whites to get through step one before you then add the ice and all this yeah, stuff. Yeah, you get the dry shake. And, and, and I make this absolutely horrific, like, you know, thin runny thing with floating chunks of gunk in it. <laughs> and
0: I've never actually made a cocktail since. <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> um, well that's that seems like an auspicious uh, point at which to decide to,
1: to stop well I just realized that you know what there are people who've spent their entire lives figuring out how to do this way better than me and so uh, since then I Generally, I'm a consumer of cocktails, if not a maker of cocktails. Sure, sure. Uh, But yeah, okay. So how do you make a Jungle Bird? Uh, So the
0: Jungle Bird, I can tell you the Jungle Bird. No, no, it was the Jet Pilot. It's the Jet Pilot. So the Jungle Bird is uh, rum, Campari, lime juice, and pineapple, I believe. There may be one other like esoteric ingredient in there. There might be a a half half an ounce of simple or something, but um, I don't think so with the pineapple juice and the Campari. All right, so Jet Pilot is a half ounce of lime
1: juice, a half ounce of grapefruit juice, a half ounce of cinnamon syrup, a half ounce of falernum, an ounce of dark rum, a three-quarters ounce of Puerto Rican rum, three-quarters ounce overproof demerara, and a dash of Angostura bitters.
0: Nice. Okay. So just like another one of those like classic hard-hitting... That thing's amazing. Yeah.
1: I mean, I always order them with my own stuff, so I also like the name A Lost Jet Pilot, and I also like A Lost Jungle Bird. <laughs> oh,
0: that's, that's pretty sweet. That's pretty
1: sweet right <laughs> The uh, On the whiskey
0: side, um, definitely penicillins. Okay. Uh, that's yeah. such a good cocktail. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, I think we'll make that. The, we do a featured cocktail for every episode, so we'll make that the, the penicillin, the featured cocktail sweet. for this episode so everyone gets a recipe. Um, but uh, when it comes to um, advice, I just want to ask two questions about advice. One's about literature, um, and I, I'm going to make this as general as possible because i have i have a feeling that you're going to come up with an atypical answer when it comes to books um, so with any aspect of what you've done uh, with lost spirits are there any books that have been particularly useful for you and this can be something from a very technical it's going be very esoteric oh even from like an inspirational
1: like a motivational point of view
0: and anything anything
1: yeah, you're going to get two different answers from two different sides of the personality, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, so I love old 19th century, uh, like end of 19th century literature, uh, because I think that was the moment at which, at least in American and, and English culture, uh, which is where our languages books come from, mm-hmm. um, we were at our peak in, in, in many ways. I mean, there were certainly lots and lots of things wrong with our society at that time. But we had... We had a a certain drive to innovate in our culture and society at that moment that I would love to see us get back to Uh, where people like Edison had democratized the idea of the inventor, uh, you know, being a common person who had found his way to this spot. And it just inspired the whole world to think about things that way so I love old books like uh, like old H.G. Wells and stuff, which if you noticed, I, I don't I actually didn't go into this. But back behind you, there's the first edition of The Time Machine. The first edition of The War of the Worlds is in there. Oh, wow. The first edition of The Island of Dr. Moreau is in the island room that I took you to when you were okay. tasting the whiskey. Uh, and at this point, I have all of them. And so I love those as like a great driving perspective to like a lens to look at the world through.
0: Yeah, where there's still stuff to uncover, right?
1: Well, yeah. I mean, and, and things like H.G. Uh, Wells wrote a book in uh, the early 20th century that's obscure and not particularly popular in which he coins a phrase for a device called an atomic bomb and dreams up the idea that you could make artificial elements that would be inherently unstable and burn indefinitely. And he literally like, dreamt up the idea that would motivate the physicists to go invent the technology sure. to explore whether or not you could actually make an artificial uh, you know, uh, element. And if, you, if it would be inherently unstable, and then you know, all of a sudden, whammo, you get you know, both the blessing and curse of nuclear power and nuclear sure. war, right? Right. Uh, and so that kind of thinking, that moment, uh, to me is where the, the most exciting period uh, maybe in, in our recent history – uh, and so I love going to those books from that time period to get into their head and into their lens and use that lens to go look around. Yeah. The, uh, on the technical side, um, there aren't books that will walk people through like booze chemistry and that kind of thing uh, reliably. Right. Uh, I mean, there are books that get pieces right here and pieces right there and pieces wrong on, more often than not. Uh, and so for that stuff, you really have to actually compile your own reading list of papers uh, and then, you know, compare and contrast them against each other and then run experiments to confirm or verify ideas. Uh, and it's it's not structured and formulaic uh, in a way that you can go pick up a book all about it.
0: Right. Are there any sources who are publishing stuff that is of any quality on that front? Is, yeah. is there like online yeah. forums? Yeah,
1: well, not online forums. Um, I mean, so, so for any of like the really good technical juicy bits, you generally go to PubMed.com. Um, which is where all the scientific papers get cataloged and organized. It's, it's sort of like Google for science. Um, there's also Google Scholar, which was Google's attempt to not let PubMed own that space. But I think PubMed does a better job of it. But you're never going to get anything but a bite-sized piece, right? Because an entire paper will be about um, short-chain fatty acid byproducts of one's particular bacteria strain. Yep. Right? So you're going to get one one hundredth of the meal. Uh, in a little bite-sized piece there, and then you're gonna go find somewhere else where you can get another 100th of a meal, and another somewhere else you can go get another 100th. And if you read enough of them and you compile enough of that material, you can sort of start to navigate your way through it. And it still has holes and gaps, and where you're where you're on your own. Sure, um, quite a few of them actually. Yeah, uh, but that's that's really the only way to tackle that aspect, um,
0: unfortunately. Or just hit you up, sign a, uh, sign a bunch of crazy paperwork, get, get a hold of uh, some of your technology and go to town. Yeah, no, I mean, we do that occasionally. So last question would be, um, do you have any advice uh, for somebody who is maybe a more established home bartender? Let's say this person's been making cocktails, enjoying spirits. They know the major categories. They know the distinction between uh you know single malt and the blended malt scotch for example sure. um but they they want to go deeper it's time to go deeper and they want to go deeper on the spirit side as sure. opposed to the cocktail side the spirit side uh, the, you know, okay. your, your wheelhouse
1: um Got what it. advice do you have um, yeah so uh so i'm gonna hate myself for saying this because it creates more competition for the bottles uh, but there's a website called whiskey-auction.com uh, uh, out of the UK where you can find all of the weird, esoteric, exotic stuff. Because most people don't realize things like, for example, the like if you want a great bottle of rum, like there there are good bottles of rum you can go to the store and buy, and and a lot of okay ones and a lot of gar- garbage. But if you want a great bottle of rum. Um, uh, and of course, I'm excluding anything I make from this list because I'm biased as hell. Uh, but you're really the place you go to get it uh, is whiskeyauction.com. And they're usually independent bottlings from a company called Villiers. Uh, there's another one called Samaroli that does a few of them uh, that get actually imported into the US. Uh, Villiers doesn't. Uh, and also, there's a little bit from, uh, from a couple of the other whiskey independent bottlers um, uh, Duncan Taylor, that kind of thing. Right. And so like when you, but if you want to go get like a great bottle, like a great, 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 great bottle of rum, you're either going to get an old flagon of British Royal Navy rum, uh, or you're going to get something like a 35 year old Demerara aged in the Caribbean from a Villiers bottling. Right. And that's where you go to get that stuff. Cause there's just so few people that want it. Like, I mean, occasionally when we're like, when there's good stuff in the auctions that comes up, you know, we're texting each other as we're bidding against each other because there's not that many people shopping for these things, so they don't necessarily want to go inspire a bunch of new ones. Okay, <laughs> all
0: right.
1: Well, so <laughs> well, that's probably the most interesting place uh, to go for for that kind of stuff.
0: Well, I apologize, but we'll put a, put a link to it in, <laughs> on, on the show notes page. Uh, I, I don't, I don't think we're gonna inspire too too much more competition, but hopefully, folks can. I mean, uh, it's an expensive hobby. It sounds like it. Well, Brian, uh, this has been. So cool. I'm still still working on processing it all, I think, which is, I think, part of the point. Yeah, no, it's totally the point. Uh, (laughs) Well,
1: and it's even more fun when you start applying the lens from it that you walk away with to other things in your life and like scratching your head and pondering, why is this done this way? What if we did that? You know, and that's that's its real sort of like. You know, if it had a like a grand chief overarching raison d'etre that exits the world of booze, uh, it's all about like creating a creative lens for people to see the rest of the world around them through.
0: Yeah, and I think that you've totally succeeded, at least as far as I'm concerned. Um, so the last thing here, could you tell folks who are listening uh, how they can find you digitally and in your physical spot, including hours and how if they need to, you know, schedule a tour, how to do that? Yeah, sure. So you
1: just go to LostSpirits.net. Um, so lost, like you're lost in the forest spirits, like ooh, spirits and .net, mm-hmm. like the thing you catch fish with. Um, and, uh, and then you can book a tour on there. You know, they're usually not too far out to book. So two, three weeks or something. And, uh, yeah, come visit and we'll be more than happy to have to chat with you. All right. And, uh, social media, there's a lost spirits Facebook page. That's sure. definitely the most active on the social media. I mean, we have an Instagram, but we virtually never use it. Okay. Um, and I virtually never use Twitter.
0: There you go. Well, uh, I think the physical experience more than makes up for it. So we're just going to tell folks to come stop by whenever they're in L.A. Cool. Thank you so much. Thanks, Brian. Really appreciate it. This episode was made possible with editing and production assistance by Samantha Reed. Thoughts on innovation and accelerated barrel aging, courtesy of Brian Davis. And a little bit of interview magic by yours truly. This has been a Modern Bar Cart production, copyright 2019.